standing, please do so for the next few moments uh, for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in the book of Habakkuk this morning. Thank you guys for helping us to sing to the Lord this morning. And if there are any of the children who are going to be practicing, you'll be dismissed at this time. It's kind of a shame we only get to sing these songs in December. I think maybe we need to do a Christmas in July kind of thing. Uh, so somebody remind me of that this, for next, this coming summer. Habakkuk chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 19 to complete the chapter. This is God's word for us this morning, and here's what God says. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shignath, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His, his were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the, of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses and your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and withered the raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in, its, in their place. At the light of your arrows they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laid him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses at the surging of my waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the, at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, 
The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in, in the God of my salvation. God, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, you may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. For there is no word like your word. Every word of yours is true. It's been true the day it's, it was pinned. And yet there's no expiration date on its truthfulness. It's true and it's living, it's active, it's work, it worked today. It literally is for our transformation. And so we would pray for the presence of your spirit to be at work through your word in each of our hearts, that you would enable us to behold wonderful, change, wonderful things from your word, and that in beholding these things, you would transform us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Habakkuk has now entered into this last component of his book. All of chapter three is a, a prayer. It is Habakkuk's prayer uh, to the Lord in light of his interaction with the Lord in the two preceding chapters. The book started with Habakkuk in great distress. The kingdom of Judah was a moral mess. The Assyrians had picked them apart and invaded them and wreaked havoc in their midst and and the nation itself was morally decaying. And Habakkuk's distress, distress was rooted in the fact that God was apparently silent. He was nowhere to be found. Nowhere was he intervening and doing anything about what was occurring in Judah. But his distress morphed into being distraught when God explains what he would be doing how he would rectify the moral mess in Judah, that he would, in fact, bring in the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, which then created even more uh, stressed, distraught conditions in his heart. And it's in that midst that God lays out for Habakkuk what he is going to do in chapter 2, verses 6 through 20, is God's description of how he would rectify and remedy the, the situation, how he would bring forth justice and righteousness, how he would deal with the Chaldeans in, in the time that he deemed appropriate. In the meantime, the Lord instructed Habakkuk to trust him, to believe in him. And it's out of that trusting in the Lord that Habakkuk praised here in chapter three. He now has a sense of what the Lord's plans are. He now has a sense of what the Lord has promised that he would do. And now he begins this prayer. In verse two, I think, gives us the, 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 the clearest focus of where we want to 
start our consideration of this passage. For it reflects upon the power of God. Oh Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. I've heard these things about who you are. I've heard these things about what you have done. Part, that's a part of what God has revealed to Habakkuk in chapter 2, who he is and what his plans are. Notice this one request, if you would, in this prayer is here in verse 2, as he reflects on God's power, his, the power displayed in who God is, the power displayed in God has worked in the past. He says, Lord, in the midst of the years, Revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. The gist of Habakkuk's one request in this prayer is, Lord, do it again. Because of who you are, because of the promises that you have declared, Lord, do it Execute your wrath, but in so doing, remember to show mercy. Lord, I know what you will do. Lord, I know who you are. And Lord, um, I fear you. I am in awe of you. I do trust in you. Show us, Lord, what you will do. That's his request. And then in the rest of this section, verses 3 through 15, that is, again, a reflecting upon the power of God. It's so intriguing as he has made his request, as he has put that forth, and he now leaves that request, if you would, at the very feet of the throne of God. He then describes in verses 3 and following, but first of all, in verses 3 through seven, he, he describes this future vision of, of the Lord doing what he said he would do in chapter two. And what's intriguing is though it's a, it's a, it's a future acknowledgement of what the Lord is going to do, it's all cast in the past tense. And we've touched on this before with Habakkuk. When the Lord does prophecy... When the Lord issues a future prediction, he can do that in past tense. Because once he is determined to do something in the future, it's a done deal. Yet what's even more intriguing is it not just it's not just in the past tense. The description of what God will do in the future is filled with allusions and references to God's actions in the past. For instance, when he says, I'll just give you an example of this. I won't go through every part of this. In verse 3, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Those were geographical locations in which when God moved Israel into the promised land, they came up from the south. They came from the land of Teman. They came from Mount Paran. And so what's he doing? He's saying that God is going to move in the future again. And the language he uses to describe God moving in the future again is how God had already been at work in the past 
moving Israel into the promised land. God is going to move into the promised land again using the same sort of allusions and references. We could do that even further as we walked on down through verses 3 through 7. We could see that, that the, the references to what God is going to do in the future is captured by what he has already done in the past. And then verses 8 through 15 uh, gives a description not simply of what the Lord has done in the past, but a description of who the Lord is, what the Lord is. And, and, and verses 8 through 15 describe the Lord as a mighty warrior who goes to battle for the sake of his people. All of the images and depictions in 8 through 15 describe that of, of war and of a soldier, a warrior, and of battle. Just one I would highlight Look at verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. God is the warrior. You pierced, verse 14, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. Um, Verse 15, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty warriors. Here's what I think verses 3 through 15 are are telling us. And we've already seen in in summary way what they're telling us. But going back to verse 2, I have heard the report of you. I've heard what you are like. I've heard what you do. I've heard how you operate and of your works. I've heard about the things you've done in the past. And verses 3 through 15 are a recollection of the things that God has done in the past and the things that God has revealed about who he is and how he operates. I point that out. And I point out just ever so briefly the, the, the couple of allusions that I've highlighted that, that, that root Habakkuk's language in descriptions of what the Lord had done up to this point is to suggest that we now see what is shaping Habakkuk's prayer. He is expressing through this prayer, even with this one request, do it again, Lord. Show us yourself again. Those realities uh, that he is praying and expressing in his prayer have been shaped uh, by how God has acted in the past, by the kind of God he has revealed himself to be in the past. And these realities, the realities of who God is and the realities of God, how God has operated, as they have been revealed in his word, are shaping Habakkuk's views in the presence, and they are shaping the language of his prayer. Three through 15 is actually prayer expressed in the language of faith. Faith believes God's word. And therefore, when God's word reveals who God is, faith 
accepts that. When faith, when, when the word reveals what God has done previously, faith embraces that. And, and, and in the midst of his distress, and in the midst of him being distraught, what is most shaping Habakkuk's praying is what the word has revealed to Habakkuk about the nature and the character and the actions of God. The word ought to shape our prayer lives. We ought to pray. And yet our prayers are best when they are informed by what God has said to us about himself in his word. It is perfectly legitimate to plagiarize our prayers. And what I mean by that is this, to take what God has said in his word and to pray that back to him, to be shaped by the word so profoundly that we don't even know how to talk to God apart from replicating the very words and terms and languages and descriptions that God has spoke to us. It makes it sound like we've heard what he said to us when what we say to him is shaped by what his word has first spoken to us. But I need to move on. So first he's reflected in this one request, he's reflected upon the power of God. But second thing I want us to notice briefly, he's not only reflected upon the power of God, but he is rejoicing in the presence of God. Habakkuk gives us these final words of prayer here in 16 through 19. And, and these are sweet words of Scripture. They're so poetically beautiful that it's really intimidating to even try to talk about them because there's no way what I could say about these words would, would, would rival what these words themselves express. This is, this is Habakkuk's prayer to the Lord, uh, and, and yet it's Scripture. And so it's God's word to us. First thing I would acknowledge, notice what he says in response in verse 16 in particular. His, this prayer expresses his reaction to all that he has seen about God and all that he has heard about God and all that he knows about God. And the first thing he expresses in this segment of his prayer is he expresses some of his physical and even physiological reactions to the distress and to the distraught condition that he has experienced and witnessed and gone through. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. I, I would take that to mean he feels something physiological occurring in his body itself. My legs tremble beneath me. Honest confession or honest 
acknowledgement of Habakkuk's personal state. And could I capture, I think, what his personal state is? This man has been weakened by all that he has seen and experienced. This man feels drained by the silence of God, followed up by the the odd plans of God, odd from his perspective. He is physically and physiologically responding to the hurt and the pain and the trauma and the affliction and the suffering that he has endured. Your reactions and my reactions, our reactions to difficulties and pain and trauma and suffering and affliction involve physical and physiological components. Every every emotion that we could track, there is a correlation between that emotion, fear, anger, dread, anxiousness. Every one of those emotions correlate to physical and physiological Symptoms. But let me chase a rabbit for a moment. We have to be careful on how we try to make sense of trauma in our lives. Trauma is real. And there are people even here this morning who have walked through trauma that none of the the rest of us could even begin to fathom and fit together. But what you and I do with our trauma, how you and I are counseled and advised to work through our trauma is not a morally neutral matter. The current popular levels, these are not really scientifically rooted, but there's a pseudoscience about them, would suggest that when a person experiences trauma, that trauma, that traumatic event, locates itself in one's reptilian brain. You say, what? Well, in the evolutionary processes of man, we are told that our, even our brains have gone through stages uh, and, and that there's still vestiges of, of yours and my reptilian brain that we've inherited from our ancestors uh, uh, and it's adjusted through the evolutionary processes. You, hey, what? Say, is this a guy a, a Christian preacher or what is he? Now, I know what some of you are saying. You wish I had such an advanced brain as a reptilian brain. <laughs> I'm not there yet, okay? I'm still evolving, I suppose. But, but, but I just stop right there and say that. So, but here are people giving counsel on how to deal with trauma, and they're doing it from a worldview that is antithetical to the Christian faith. 
what they would suggest is that trauma, for some reason, it likes to land in the reptilian brain section of your brain, which is a, a carryover vestige of, of what you once were. You were once as smart as a reptile, I suppose. Um, it, and, and, and as a result of that, that when it lands in your reptilian brain, it renders you and I no longer moral agents. We're not held accountable for our moral choices. Why? Because that trauma has located itself in our reptilian brain, and our reptilian brain hijacks our moral responses. All right, have I lost you yet? Habakkuk does a wonderful job of acknowledging the physical and physiological realities of how distress and being distraught and hurt and pain and suffering locate themselves in our hearts and souls and do so in a way that expresses it in physical and physiological ways. And yet what I would suggest to you is that it doesn't render Habakkuk morally incapable of responding. Now look at the rest of verse 16. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters my bones, and legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invaded us. Oh, our difficulties, our traumas, uh, our sufferings, they, they have profound influence in our lives, but they do not get the final say. They do not define us. Our trauma is not us. We are still us even when we walk through trauma. And who's us? Us are always moral agents and responders before God. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing takes our moral responsibility away from us. I will yet patiently wait for the Lord. Does it influence us? Yes, it does. But it does not control our choices. His first choice is he will quietly wait. All that God said he will do, he hadn't even started yet. You remember how the book begins? And look at chapter 1, verse 2. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not hear? How long, oh, Lord? And then notice what the Lord says in chapter 2, verse 3, second part of verse 3 there. If it seems slow, wait for it. And do you see the progression? He's gone from distress to distraught. And now he acknowledges, yet, even as my body is trembling and my lips are quivering and my bones are rotting and my legs are trembling, yet I will wait. What does it take 
to wait upon the Lord? It takes strength. Nah, that's not it. It takes much strength to wait upon the Lord. And guess what? Habakkuk is spent. He does not natively have the strength to wait upon the Lord. And yet, somewhere, somehow, he's just said, he's just made the choice, I will quietly wait. There's an answer here somewhere. The answer, the the question is, where does this guy get his strength to wait? But he has another choice that we'll throw in here as well. In verse 17 and 18. In verse 17, he first of all acknowledges not what he did in verse 16 by describing the physical and physiological happenings in his own body, but but here in verse 17, he describes his um, circumstantial and uh, situational experience. This is nothing less. I mean, this is so far removed from us. We're like, like, if the fig tree should not blossom, like, I don't get it. I don't even have a fig tree. I'm doing just fine, you know. But, but this is where we have to look back and to see how big of a deal would that be in that day and age if the fig tree does not blossom, if fruit not be on the vine, if, there'd be, if, the, uh, uh, if the olive tree failed to produce, if there's no uh, food uh, yielding in the fields, if there's no flocks in the fold, if there's no herds in the stall, what is he describing? But situationally, circumstantially, he's describing the complete collapse economically of his situation. Though my 401k dissipates, though my bank account disappears, though though my employment cease. You say, well, that'd be pretty devastating. That's, That's what we're talking about. So whether it's the, the, the physical things going on in him or whether it's the circumstantial things going on in him, he's still not rendered un- incapable of making a moral choice. What does he say in verse 18? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Oh, it takes much strength to wait quietly for the Lord to act. It takes much strength to choose to wait quietly for the Lord to act. We're now off the chart from how much strength it takes to quietly wait for the Lord to act to rejoicing in the Lord in the meantime when he doesn't intervene and act. It takes a lot of strength to quietly wait. It takes even more strength to rejoice in the midst 
of circumstantial and situational devastation. But Habakkuk is spent. Where is this guy getting this strength to fuel his choices? Look at verse 19. God, my Lord, is my strength. God, my Lord, is my strength. Where does Habakkuk's strength come from? The strength to choose to wait patiently, the strength to choose to rejoice and to find joy in. What is the source of his strength? Well, it's not a what, is it? Who is the source of his strength? My Lord. We've now tagged and identified the very center of Habakkuk's life. We've now tagged and identified the explanation to Habakkuk. What is it that can cause a man who is distressed and distraught to delight and to wait? It is the Lord. You see, when you and I go through difficulties, when you and I go through stress, when you and I go through trauma, when you and I go through suffering, when you and I go through affliction, then you and I are going to center our lives on someone or upon something. And who or what we center our lives upon is what will determine the kinds of choices that we make. Here is a man that has been run through the ringer. Here is a man who is dazed and confused. Here is a man who is stressed out and distraught, and rightfully so. But here is a man whose last words to us direct us to focus upon the Lord. The Lord who was Habakkuk's strength is, in fact, the Lord, the only Lord, who could be any of our strength. In other words, what defined Habakkuk was, was not what is happening physiologically in his life or physically in his life. What defined Habakkuk was not what is happening circumstantially or situationally in his life. What defined Habakkuk and the choices that he made was who or what his life was centered upon. Who or what was the focus of his life. And by the grace of God, the focus of Habakkuk's life was the Lord. The Lord who would eventually take on flesh and come and live among us. The Lord who would render unto his Father a life of perfect obedience. 
the Lord who would render unto his Father a life of complete, perfect righteousness. The Lord who would render unto his Father uh, a perfect sacrifice by taking the sins of his people and bearing up under those sins by hanging from a cross, absorbing the punishment, the curse, the wrath of God in place of his people because of their sins. This, this Lord whom God would raise from the dead and this Lord who this morning is at the Father's right hand and who has promised to return, this Lord, that any and all who turn and trust in him, any and all who center our lives upon him, we will have everything we need to live this life. No matter what our physical challenges are, no matter what our circumstantial uh, difficulties might be, if the Lord is the center of our lives, then we have everything we need this morning to honor him, to honor him by waiting upon him, and while we wait, to rejoice in him. Turn to Jesus. Trust only in him. May he be, in fact, the only center of our lives. May he be the focus of while, while we walk through whatever the Lord has providentially arranged for us to experience. May Christ be our Lord, for he then will always be our strength. Thank you, Father, for your word. For there is no word like yours. And we would pray, we would ask that you would help us now in, in this moment of conclusion and response to your word. Even as we sing our love to you. Father, may we do that with great integrity and faith. May you truly be our center and our focus. May you truly be our strength. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.